You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. The Gospel of John, chapter 2. And we're going to read from verse 1 through the end of verse 12 together. The Gospel of John, chapter 2. And I'm going to preach until my voice gives out, or until we get to the end of my message, whichever comes first. I'm praying for the voice, and so am I. John, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through the end of verse 12. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing twenty or thirty gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some of out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The beginning of his signs Jesus did, the beginning, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there a few days. Let's bow together in prayer before we begin. Our Father, it is truly a joy to have your word before us and we are thankful that we have the opportunity to study it together. We pray that as we Do look at your word that you would give to us, the illumination that we need, understanding that is necessary. We have no ability in and of ourselves to rightly discern spiritual things. That is a gift that you give to your children, and we pray for that now, that your spirit would be our teacher and that your word would be our guide. Give us understanding in these things, and may you be pleased here with our time spent together in this, your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We finished John chapter 1 a couple of weeks ago, and so... Since John chapter 2 is next, we're taking that. It won't take us as long to get through John chapter 2 as it did to get through John chapter 1. John chapter 2 basically sort of revolves around two main episodes or events in the life of Jesus. In verses 1 through 11, there is the uh, miracle that he performs at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. Then in the last half of the chapter, there is the cleansing of the temple, which begins in verse 13 and goes through the end of the chapter. Now, it may at first seem like those two things are two totally unrelated issues, the turning of water into wine and the cleansing of the temple. They are not unrelated thematically. They happen probably a couple of months apart. You see at the beginning of verse 13 and following that uh, the Passover of the Jews was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem to the temple. There is a thematic connection, and there is a reason why Jesus turned the water into wine and why that is followed with him cleansing the temple. And we'll deal with the the connection later on when we get further on into chapter 2, but I, I just want you to pack that away in the back of your mind. There's a connection between those two events, and there's a reason why John records them 
back to back. In John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we have presented to us the first of Jesus' miracles. And this is kind of a unique passage, and it is a, it's unique for a number of different reasons. And, and let me kind of give them to you. John chapter 2 begins with, now on the third day, and we remember that beginning in chapter 1 at verse 19, we saw that John is laying out seven days, or the first week, basically, in the public ministry of the Lord Jesus. It begins in verse 19 of chapter 1, where the Pharisees sent a delegation to question John the Baptist. And then you have on the next day John saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's in verse 29. Then on the next day, verse 35, you have John losing two of his disciples who go and follow Jesus. Then in verse 43, again the next day, that's when Jesus sought out Philip, and Philip went and found Nathaniel, and they begin to follow Jesus. Now chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day, that is, on the third day from the last day that John mentioned, which was the next day mentioned in verse 43 when he went to find Philip and found Philip and Philip found Nathaniel. So beginning at chapter 2, this is now the seventh day of this first week of Jesus' public ministry. And if you get nothing else from that, you and I should remember this. This was a very busy week. It was a busy week because in that one week you have all of this going on. John baptizing by the Jordan, answering questions, Jesus showing up, declaring the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then we have that encounter with five of John's, or sorry, five of the original 12 disciples. Jesus encountering those five and gathering around him them. And then by the time you get to the end of that first week, he's up from out of Bethany, up in Cana of Galilee. And there he turns the water into wine. And this is his first miracle. It's unique and interesting to us for a number of reasons. First, because it is Jesus' first miracle. You see that in verse 11. This, the first of his signs. This was at the beginning of Jesus' signs. His very first miracle that he ever did. Up to this point, Jesus had not shown his omnipotence, his almighty power, in any way. He had not done any miracles as a child or even as an adult. He had performed no signs and no miracles. This is the very first revelation of his omnipotence, the very first sign that he ever did. There are some groups who teach that Jesus performed miracles as a child. In some uh, portions of the Catholic Church and tradition, they have traditions that Jesus, uh, I think one of them is he took mud out of the riverbank and formed it and made a dove out of it and created life out of thin air. I think that that's one of the, the Catholic traditions. What does John say? The water at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, turning that into wine, was the first of Jesus' signs. When he was a child, he didn't multiply his candy like he did later, the bread and the fish for the multitudes. He didn't walk on water to give himself an advantage of of swimming with the other boys and girls in the neighborhood. He, He didn't do any sign, any parlor trick, anything like that. Visibly speaking, all of his growing up years, if you just saw him playing out with the other kids and doing the thing that Jewish boys did, he looked no different than anybody else. This is the very first sign that he ever performed. A second reason why this is unique is because this, here in John chapter 2, is the only place where this miracle is recorded. It's the only place this miracle is recorded. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention it. It is due to John and by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, his gospel, that we know what the first miracle Jesus did was. And the third reason that this is unique, or at least interesting to us, is because as with all of John's miracles, or the miracles that John records in his gospel, this one has a particular theological reason. John records seven of Jesus' miracles, and a couple of them we have no record of anywhere else, like, for instance, the um, raising of Lazarus from the dead, 
and this miracle in Cana of Galilee. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't record those. Out of all of the miracles that Jesus did, John chose to record seven of them. Only seven. Now listen, there were hours in the life of Jesus where he performed seven miracles. In an hour. When they brought the multitudes to him and he was raising the dead and healing the sick and curing the lame and the lepers and all of that, he was doing multiple miracles per hour. And John, in a statement of hyperbole at the end of his gospel, says if we were to write down every sign that Jesus did and everything he did, the world could not contain the books that could be written. There was so much for John to choose from. And we need to keep this in mind as we read not only the gospels but any book in the New Testament. The authors wrote what they wrote with a specific theological reason in mind. And part of understanding the text of Scripture is understanding what those reasons were. Why did he record what he recorded? Why did John, out of the multitude of material that he had available to him, select these seven miracles and not other miracles that are recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or other miracles that none of the Gospel writers recorded? Why these seven? It's not as if the Gospel writers sat down and said, now I want to tell a story about Jesus, so I need to come up with some good ideas. Let's... Oh yeah, there was that one, he rose that one lady from the dead. I'll, I'll write that in there. And there was the whole multiplying bread and fish thing. That, that would be a good story. What else is there? I should probably include something that he said. The stuff about prayer was good, so I'll put that in there. And then there was a whole sermon on the mount. I'll throw that in there as well. That's not how they wrote their Gospels. You know how they wrote their Gospels? Matthew set out to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, the rightful son of David, the king of Israel. And so Matthew, out of all of the abundance of material that he had available to him, selected the miracles and the sayings and the sermons and the episodes in the life of Jesus, which demonstrated that he was the king of Israel. Luke, setting out to show that Jesus was legitimately man, gathered together all of the miracles and all of the sayings of Jesus and the encounters that Jesus had in order to demonstrate the humanity of Jesus. Mark wanted to show him to be the servant of the Lord. And so Mark put together all of the miracles and all the sayings of Jesus which uniquely contributed to his theological point, which was that Jesus is the servant of the Lord. John is writing to prove to us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he is the Word made flesh, that he is the eternal God in human form. He he is deity in human flesh. And so John selects all of the statements of Jesus, all of the encounters with Jesus, all of the statements made about Jesus, and all of the things that Jesus did, which uniquely show his deity. And John chapter 2 is one of those episodes, those miracles, which uniquely demonstrate the deity of Jesus Christ. Here is how it shows the deity of Jesus Christ. He is able to take water and turn it into wine by an act of his will. Without touching the water, without performing any, without saying anything to the water, simply without touching or saying or doing anything, he steps back and is able, as an act of his will, to create, almost out of thin air, out of water, wine. The best wine that they had ever tasted. That uniquely shows his deity. So for the sake of our study, we're going to kind of divide this whole miracle in chapter 2 up into four parts. We're going to see the place of the miracle in verses 1 and 2, then in verses 3 to 5, the problem which occasioned the miracle, verses 6 through 10, the provision that was the miracle itself, and then verse 11, the whole point of the miracle. We're going to take the first two today. The place of the miracle and the problem that occasioned the miracle. And then next week we'll look at the provision. And then what was the point of the miracle? What was the object lesson being drawn from the miracle itself? Jesus didn't do miracles just because they were parlor tricks. He didn't do them to impress people. That's what the Pharisees wanted of him. 
The Pharisees said to Jesus, show us a sign, what they wanted. Show us a trick. Do some miraculous trick for us, some miraculous sign to show us who you are. And Jesus said, no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And that whole encounter revolved around this issue. Jesus did his signs for specific reasons, for specific purposes, to specific people. And John chapter 2 is no different. So let's look first of all at the place that this miracle occurred. John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. On the third day there was a wedding, and we'll get back to that in just a second, in Cana of Galilee. Now where was Cana? Cana was about nine miles north of Nazareth. You remember the big map I drew here in the room a couple weeks ago? They had the Jordan River over here and the Sea of Galilee up here. The Dead Sea back there in that corner. Mediterranean out here. Nazareth was up here where Mel sits. Cana is up here about where the microphone is at. About nine miles north of Nazareth is Cana. It's up here by the Sea of Galilee in the northern part of the nation of Israel. Cana was a totally insignificant town, even more insignificant than the city of Nazareth. You remember Nathaniel said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Remember an ancient Clark Fork of sorts? Can anything good come out of there? And they joked about that and they sort of ridiculed the people who came from that area. Well, Cana was even more insignificant and obscure than Nazareth. It was at the end of a road, almost like living at the end of a one-way street. You had to go off the beaten path and down this long path to get out to Cana. It was a poor, insignificant, very unknown city. That's probably why John, always when he refers to Cana in the Gospel of John, refers to it as Cana of Galilee. Three times John mentions it. And if it weren't, and outside of the Gospel of John, Cana's never mentioned. Not mentioned at all. John mentions it three times. Once here, once in chapter 4, verse 46, and once in chapter 21 when we're told that Cana was the hometown of Nathaniel. Nathaniel was from Cana. So mentioned three times, and all three times that John mentions Cana, he calls it Cana of Galilee. Why does he always put on that little little tag of Galilee? One of two reasons. It's possible, highly unlikely, but possible that there were two Gal- uh, two Canas, and one of them was in Galilee and one of them was not in Galilee. And so whenever you spoke of one, you had to specify which Cana you were talking about, as if to say Cana in the region of Galilee as opposed to Cana in the other region. We don't know of any other Canas anywhere in the land of Israel. None others are mentioned. And we know of none that existed at that day other than this one. So that's probably not it. The reason why John always says Cana of Galilee is probably because Cana was so unknown that he had to at least tell people which region of the map you could find Cana on. It's Cana. Cana, where's Cana? Cana of Galilee. In other words, look at the north end of your map and you'll find Cana. That's how unknown it was. So all three times John mentions it as Cana of Galilee. Today there is an uninhabited ruin about nine miles north of Nazareth, an uninhabited uh, ruin known as Kirbet Cana, and that is probably where the ancient Cana was. They've discovered some houses there and such uh, today. That is where Nathaniel lived, and in Jesus' day it was a poor village where some people lived. And on this particular day there was a wedding going on there. Look at verse 2. Sorry, the end of verse 1. And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now John indicates, uses two different words for Jesus being there and Mary being there. And notice that John doesn't call Mary, Mary. He calls her the mother of Jesus, by the way. That's the first time in the gospel we hear anything about Jesus being born. You realize that? All of chapter 1 was about the Word becoming flesh, and he existed in flesh, beheld his glory, his deity, his exalted nature and status. It's not until we get into here chapter 2 that we find out even that there was a person who was Jesus' mother. But he doesn't call her Mary. He calls her the mother of Jesus. It says that Mary was there. 
Jesus and the disciples were invited. And the distinction is significant because Mary was not an invited guest. You don't see Mary, the mother of Jesus, acting as an invited guest with all of these people. She's the first one to know, or at least one of the first people to know that the wine has run out. She takes the initiative to approach Jesus in order to solve the problem. Mary is likely functioning in the capacity of somebody who's responsible for helping to host and put on this big spread, this feast that was going on there. Jesus and his disciples are invited guests. Mary was there. Mary was serving. She was part of this wedding planning and putting on this whole feast. Jesus and the disciples were invited. So they they have a bit of a different function. The fact that Jesus is there and his disciples are there and that Mary is there, or I should say the fact that Mary is there and Jesus and the disciples were invited, is an indication that whoever was getting married, and you'll notice that it doesn't name the couple, whoever it was that was getting married whose wedding this was, they're unnamed, but likely they were somebody closely related to Jesus and his family. Because Mary is there serving to help sort of put on the feast, Jesus and his disciples were invited. They didn't just send out invitations to whole villages and whole cities. Weddings in those days were big affairs, but it was an invitation system kind of like we have today. Jesus and the disciples were invited, indicating this was somebody probably that Jesus knew. There's been all kinds of ink spilled on who this was. Some people say, oh, maybe it was Nathaniel or somebody that Nathaniel knew. Or maybe this was John, the author of the gospel. Maybe it was his wedding that Jesus attended up in Cana. Or maybe it was one of Jesus' brothers or Jesus' sister. We don't know who it was. We have no idea who it was. And I think John intentionally keeps it quiet from us. So they are there. They're there at the wedding. Look at verse 2. Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, weddings weddings in ancient Jewish culture were a bit different than we have today. They started with a betrothal period. A betrothal period. Betrothal, betrothal, I don't know how you say it. I'm going to say it betrothal since I'm the one preaching. If you want to preach, you can pronounce it differently. It's a betrothal period or betrothal period. They had a betrothal period which really was far more serious than our modern day engagement setup that we have. Similar to our, the way we do engagement, but a little bit different. In our engage, the way we do engagement before marriage today, you can break an engagement without any kind of social stigma, without any kind of, you know, ramifications other than breaking somebody's heart. Um, you can break an engagement relatively easy. Our engagements are really just times to, the time to prepare for the whole thing. You gotta make all the arrangements and invite people and decide who you're gonna invite and who you don't want to be there and make sure that Uncle Jack stays far away because he never handles things like this well and he never shows up sober and all of that stuff that goes on. Our engagement setup is basically to prepare the wedding. Back in the Jewish day, in the Jewish culture, weddings were entirely different. Here's how it would work. They would begin with a betrothal period or betrothal period in which they were sort of pledged to one another. And they would commit themselves to marry one another. That was a binding contract. You could not break a betrothal unless you started divorce proceedings. It was very serious. It was binding. But during that period of time, which would last for sometimes many months, the couple, though betrothed to each other, was, were, they did not inhabit, they didn't live with each other, they didn't um, come together in the sense that a man and a woman come together. There was no intimacy, there was no um, consummating the marriage or the, the vows or anything like that. At the end of the betrothal period, the couple would meet together in the city, and there would be a long processional, usually at nighttime, Oh, and by the way, this always happened if, if the woman, if the bride was a virgin, it took place on a Wednesday. If she wasn't a virgin, it took place. If she was a widow, it took place on a Thursday. Now, why is that? 
I have no idea. I have a suspicion. I have no idea why that is. I like the idea, by the way. I'd rather have weddings be on a Wednesday in the middle of the week. Right? Some guys are shaking their heads saying, yeah, I can remember more than one Saturday with good weather that I've spent at a wedding or had my whole Saturday burned up at a wedding. I love that idea. of, And particularly for my kids, I think we're going to do it maybe on a Wednesday. This is a great idea instead of on a Saturday. So they would start with this long camp uh, procession. Sometimes after dark, they would wait till the sun had gone down and they would walk through the city sort of with a torchlight parade, all of them carrying uh, torches, no pitchforks, just torches. And they would walk through the city. So it would be a very bright sort of a, a, a very ostentatious outward display ceremony. And this procession would end up at the bride's home. And then when they were got to the bride's home, and by the way, this is all at the end of the long betrothal period. When they got to the bride's home, they would have some sort of a religious ceremony where they would exchange vows and commit themselves to each other and sort of make official before God their uh, pledge to be married and to come together as husband and wife. And then at the bride's home, there would be some probably like toasts or speeches or well-wishing and things like that. And then they would take the processional and they would go from the bride's home to the groom's home, which had been prepared for the couple. So when Jesus said to his disciples, which is us, his church, I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again and I will receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. There is bridal symbolism in that. And this is the bridal symbolism. The groom has gone away during the betrothal period and the groom is coming back to take us to where he has prepared for us. That's what the Jewish men did in those days. They would prepare a place for the bride during that betrothal period. Then they would go to the bride's home, take the bride, take her to where he had prepared the place for him. Okay? Beautiful symbolism. So that's what the Jewish man would do. And the whole procession would end at the man's home. And at the man's home, then they would have a feast. And this feast is not like one meal that you and I would prepare today. We sort of have snacks and refreshments and everything after a wedding. A feast would last several days, maybe sometimes up to a week. And it probably happened on a Wednesday or a Thursday in order to keep it from happening on a Saturday. If it happened on a Saturday or on a Sabbath, then what would that mean? That would be a lot of work to put on a wedding for the Sabbath. So they did it during the week. And then oftentimes their celebration would last over the weekend for up to a whole week where people would come and go and visit. They would gather together, free meals and all of that provided, and people just a week-long celebration. And I'm in favor of all of that as well for a wedding. I think it would be great to have somebody get married that you knew. You could go every evening and get a free meal, hang out, rejoice, celebrate, experience the joy of it. I think that's a great idea. Unless I'm paying for it as the parent, then it's a totally different story. We're not going to do that with my kids. Maybe marriage on a Wednesday, but we're not going to do any kind of um, week-long feast. So don't anybody get your hopes up. So the, that's how the whole thing would end. The whole wedding would end. So now Jesus has arrived with his disciples and the wine has run out. The wine has run out. Mary found out about this. Mary brought the problem to Jesus. And the fact that the wine has run dry is a very serious issue. In our day, if you run out of drinks during the refreshment time, you simply run down to the next corner and you buy some Sprite or you buy a couple two liters of Coke or you buy some more Hawaiian punch or juice or whatever it is and you provide for your guests. But in this day and, in this day and age, in Jesus' time, it was much more serious. It was serious because it created a, a very delicate social stigma. The fact that the wine ran out could very well be due to the fact that this young couple, this bride and this groom, who were at this wedding, that they were poor. Wine was a symbol of prosperity. It was the rich who had lots of wine. 
If you had lots of wine to enjoy, it was evidence that there had been a good crop the year before and you had the abundance of provision. You had the money either to make or to buy lots of wine. The fact that they ran out may very well indicate, because Cain is a small, insignificant, poor village, the fact that they ran out may indicate that this couple had prepared everything that they had at their disposal to put on this feast, but it simply wasn't enough. And the people showed up, and the feast went on, and partway through the feast, maybe a day, two into it, whatever it was, the wine ran out. That creates a social stigma for this young couple, and here's why. There was an expectation in the culture of their day that when you went to a wedding feast, that they would put on a celebration at a certain level. There was actually even a legal requirement that the groom provide a celebration with all of the accoutrements attached to it that was worthy of the the event itself, the wedding. And it's difficult for us to imagine this in our culture, but in that culture, there was a sense of reciprocity about the wedding ceremony. I show up at the wedding ceremony, there better be something there worth celebrating, and there better be enough stuff there to accommodate all of our celebration. And if you run out of wine, all you have done is shown that you don't think that this ceremony and this event is worthy of us celebrating it. There's almost no social reason that you should run out of a staple like wine in that culture. Second, and this is going to be even more difficult for you to understand, it was expected that the the groom paid for the wedding ceremony. Now, back when I had my first daughter, I thought that was a great idea. Then I had a boy, and I thought, well, that's only going to wash out for equally for me. In our culture, it's the bride and her family that pay for the ceremony, right? In that culture, it was the groom. And the groom had a legal responsibility to provide for the feast. And if he did not, the bride's family could sue him. The bride's family could recoup from the groom's family some of the cost of what they think they were shorted. It was a very reciprocal agreement. Nothing like us today. If you ran out of some juice or something today at a modern-day wedding, we just simply said, we understand. No big deal. We'll just have water. Not in that day. Not in that. I mean, that's the way to start your wedding, your marriage, right? To have your in-laws suing each other. The bride's parents suing the groom's parents, trying to get financial remuneration. Why would you say, would they do such a thing? They would do such a thing, and here's why. Because the bride's parents would say, our daughter is worthy of a celebration and a recognition at such and such a level, and you have failed to provide that. You have disgraced us by not providing a wedding ceremony and a service and a celebration that is on par with what our daughter deserves. So you are going to pay for it. So Jesus' miracle is not just a trick that he performs at a wedding. This miracle, like every other miracle that Jesus does, has not only a symbolism, but it meets a felt need. It meets a very real need. This couple is in a horribly embarrassing situation. Now that is the problem that the miracle, that occasioned the miracle. It happened in Cana of Galilee, and the problem was they had run out of wine. Now Jesus' mother, Mary, is aware of the fact that they are out of wine. She knows of the social stigmatism that would be attached with this. She knows of the legal ramifications. She knows that this could mean disaster for the groom and a social stigma attached to him for years to come because of what they failed to do. And so Mary took this problem to Jesus. And look what she says in verse 3. They have no wine. Now, I think there's some sort of a expectation attached to those words, that statement of Mary to Jesus. I think she's expecting something. And Jesus said to her, verse 4, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now, someone may rightly say, hold on a second. If this is Jesus' first sign, 
What did Mary expect? She had never seen him perform a sign before. So when she comes to him, is she asking him to perform a sign? There's no reason why she would expect that he would since he's never done a sign before. I think there's two ways of, of, of kind of seeing what goes on here, what's going on here. Number one, I think that one of the reasons why Mary came to Jesus was because Jesus is her oldest son and she has lived with him for years and she knows him to be a very wise, very knowledgeable, very resourceful man. So as a mother, probably who has been widowed by this point, Joseph not in the story, she comes to her oldest son and she's presenting to him the problem, perhaps asking for some wisdom or some input. I think that that's possible, but I think that there's more going on. I think that also Mary has a certain expectation that Jesus is going to step in and do something. So I want you to think of this from Mary's perspective. She knows what has gone on in this last week of the Lord Jesus' life. She heard the angel say, he is going to be great, the son of the most high God. He's going to sit on the throne of his father David and rule over the house of Israel. He's the Messiah. She knows he is virgin born. She has watched him grow up. She knows he is a unique child. She knows that he is a supernatural child. Everything about him is different than the other kids. Everything about him is different than the other kids. She knows that he is resourceful, wise, knowledgeable, understanding, has discretion and wisdom, and has an ability to solve problems that you and I don't have. I can't even understand. An amazing individual. She's observed all of this. And she has pondered for years the words of the angel in her own mind. And then I would assume that she also knows what has happened in the last week. That he had been baptized some 50 days earlier, gone out into the wilderness and been tempted and come back and been declared to be the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Jesus has started to gather around him disciples who are following him. He is teaching them. He is beginning to reveal to them through words the glories of his person. And I think that Mary, understanding him to be the Messiah, understanding that the time has come for him to enter into his public ministry, is asking Jesus to do something to reveal his glory to her. So she goes to him and she says, they have no wine. And I think the expectation is, look, this is the perfect opportunity to you, for you to reveal the fullness of your glory to the nation of Israel, to the people. Do something here that will show them who you really are, who I know you to be and who you know you to be. Do something here that will demonstrate your glory to everybody. That's why Jesus said, my, my hour has not yet come. That's used throughout the Gospel of John, and it's used by Jesus to simply say, the time of the revelation of my full glory has not yet come. That seems to be Mary's expectation. She knows him to be the Messiah, and she thinks this is the perfect opportunity for him to pull the covers off of that and show everybody what's going on. So Jesus says to her, woman, what does that have to do with me and you? That sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? Woman. It sounds harsher to us in the English language than it is in Greek. It sounds really cold and distant. In the Greek, actually, it's a term of affection and endearment and respect, much like we would refer to somebody as ma'am today. But men, don't go home and call, start calling your wives woman and say that's a term of endearment and affection. It doesn't work that way. Not in our culture. In Jesus' time, you see, you see Jesus do it in John chapter 19, verse 26, where he commits to John, the apostle, the care of his mother, and he says to his mother, Mary, woman, behold your son, pointing to John, committing John into uh, her into John's care. It was a term of endearment and respect. But the question that Jesus asks her, what does that have to do with us? That was a, a an idiom, a figure of speech. It was a common question. And, and basically sort of to put it in our vernacular, here's what it did. It basically was saying, what does that have to do? What does your problem have to do with me? That's how we would say it. That's your issue. Right? A more crude way of saying it, a lack of planning on your part does not constitute an emergency on my part. Right? 
This question that Jesus asks her has a way of putting a distance between her and Jesus. And he is essentially saying, what does this have to do with us? How is it that both of us play into this equation? And it's Jesus' way. She's coming to him with expectations. She is coming to him saying, here's what I want you to do. Do something about this problem. And Jesus is essentially saying this. Excuse me, ma'am, but there's distance here now. Something more profound is going on in those words, friends. This is why Jesus doesn't call her mother or mom. He could have used that term, but he doesn't. Instead, he uses a word that intentionally distances himself from Mary and says to Mary, uh, excuse me, but my time has not yet come. And I think that Jesus is gently but firmly reminding Mary, look, up until this point, I have been your son and I have lived under your authority with your expectations and I have done what you've asked me. But now the time has come for me to enter into my public ministry. Excuse me, ma'am, but you have to stop viewing me as your son and start viewing me as your savior. Because I'm entering into my public ministry now and I will no longer do things by your timetable and I will no longer do things by your expectations. What it is that you've asked me to do, your problem has nothing to do with me and he is putting a distance between himself and her. Now Jesus isn't saying that he's not going to do anything about it. He's simply saying to Mary, you have to understand I'm not going to do anything based upon your expectations. I'm not under your authority anymore. And she had to bear that. As parents, all of us get to the point in our lives where we have to begin to let go of our children. It's an unhealthy relationship where a parent tries to hold on to the child and say, oh, I want to be there with them all the time. Or the child holds on to the parent and says, I never want to leave mommy and daddy. That's an unhealthy relationship. A healthy relationship is where the parent and the child get to a point of saying, you know what, even though I'm your father and even though you're my child, the relationship has changed a little bit because now you're your own man or you're your own woman and you have to make your own decisions and you have to be responsible for yourself. And I can be your father and you can be my child, but our relationship is not like it was when you were two. It's not like it was when you were six. Now Mary has to do even more than that now. She has to actually stop viewing Jesus as her son and start viewing him as the Messiah, as her Savior. And that's what Jesus is doing. Mary understood what he was getting at. Mary kind of got the picture. So she says in verse 5, Mary said to the servants, whatever he says, do you do it? Now she had to tell the servants that. See, Mary's in charge, obviously, of some function within this feast. So she gives instruction to the servants who are serving with her, probably under her. Whatever he says to you, you need to do that. Why would she tell them that? She told them that because this would seem awfully strange for an invited guest to begin to give instructions to the people who are putting on the feast and begin to command them. So she says to the servants, whatever it is that he asked you to do, you do it. And here's what Mary does. The whole problem that she has pushed in front of Jesus as if she wants him and expects him to deal with it and even do so in a supernatural way that would reveal his glory, Jesus has now distanced himself. Mary has accepted that reproof and she essentially turns it right back over to Jesus and says, whatever he says to you guys, you do it. It's in his ballpark. He will do whatever's fitting for him to do, whatever is in accordance with his will. Well, that's the place of the miracle. And that's the problem that occasioned the miracle. My voice is held out and I'm going to quit because we are done. And to next week, we will look at the provision and what is the point of this miracle. I'm going to ask you to do something that I don't ask you to do very often. Read the rest of John chapter 2 and begin to think through this coming weeks, what is the connection between the miracle, the turning of the water into wine, and the, cha- and the purging or the cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem? There is a thematic connection. And we'll draw those dots together or start doing that next week. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we are grateful to you for the strength that you give, for the provision that you have made in your Son. We thank you for the glory that is here manifested in our Lord Jesus, for all that he is and all that he has done. We thank you for the glories of his person and the indescribable depth of his character and his understanding. We thank you that in all things you have provided for us a sacrifice and a Savior, which is sufficient for our sin. We acknowledge again our dependence upon you in understanding all things and in serving and living and walking with you as we ought. We thank you for the grace that you give. We ask that as we commit these things to our hearts and to our minds and our thoughts, that you would be pleased, that you would be glorified, and that you would draw our hearts and our souls nearer to you in love and affection. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.